Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 1.9 and uh, confess your sins to God in the privacy of your priesthood. When we do that, we're instantly forgiven. doesn't matter what the sin is, we are forgiven, and we are restored to fellowship. We cover the filling of the Holy Spirit so we can advance in our spiritual life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your word that is a light to our thinking. Psalm has said it is in thy light that we see light, and so we know that by studying your word we understand how we are to think, how we are to understand reality. It is through your word that we understand our nature as sinners, our need for grace and salvation, to have faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, we understand your perfect provision in Jesus Christ and that our salvation is dependent not on who we are but on who you are. Father, we thank you also for the freedom that we have to worship this morning, the freedom that we have in this nation. We thank you for the uh, leadership that our president and others in the administration are demonstrating during this war on terrorism we thank you for the protection that you are giving this country, despite the fact that we are under attack. We pray that you would continue to watch over us, protect us, foil the plans of the enemy, and give our leaders and those in charge of security wisdom and skill in order to identify and prevent uh, future terrorist attacks. Father, we pray that you would continue to uh, give us this freedom, protect us, give us the opportunity to both support Israel and to send out missionaries. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that we would be challenged by the things that we study, that we can understand these things and see the marvelous truths of your word and how they relate to our own spiritual growth and development. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're going to continue our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. 1 Corinthians 3.16 states, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, this is a verse that on the surface seems fairly simple. And it's one I'm sure that we've all studied time and again as we've gone through the spiritual life and emphasizing the fact that, that we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit as believers from the instant of our salvation. 
that truth has not always been clearly understood and that there are those who confuse the indwelling of the Holy Spirit with the filling of the Holy Spirit. There are even those who confuse the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But these are all distinct ministries of God the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer during the church age. It is unique to the church age that we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. This did not happen in the Old Testament. There were there were a few, very few, that were, uh, to, to use a word to distinguish it from indwelling, that were endued by God the Holy Spirit. That is, uh, it was temporary, and it was for a specific purpose, and the purpose always had to do with the administration of God's theocratic kingdom, with the administration of his people, either in terms of giving revelation through the prophets of the Old Testament or through the leadership of, of certain kings, such as Saul, who lost it because of his carnality and his rebellion against God, and David, who prayed that he would not lose it when he fell into sin and God did not take the Holy Spirit from him. But in the Old Testament, you see, the 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 endowment of the Holy Spirit was temporary. It was not for the purpose of the spiritual life. It did not have anything to do with the spiritual life of the prophets who were endued with the Holy Spirit. Their endowment had to do with the wisdom God gave them in the function of being a prophet, not in their spiritual life. With the king, it had to do with giving them wisdom and skill in leading the nation, not with their spiritual life. Uh, For example, it, when the construction of the tabernacle, the two main uh, two leaders in the, among the craftsmen who constructed the, the tabernacle were uh, Bezalel and Aholiab, and they were endued by the Holy Spirit who gave them skill related to their craftsmanship in, in constructing the art and doing all, uh, all of the metalwork. All of the uh, in, involved in all the jewelry that was used in the uh, ornamentation of the of the uh, uh, high priest garment. These kinds of things had nothing to do with spiritual life, but they had to do with the uh, administration and leadership of the nation of Israel. By the time we get into the church age, though, there is something distinct that happens after the day of Pentecost, and that is that every believer is baptized by God the Holy Spirit. They are in, every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit permanently from the instant of salvation. And then the uh, practice for the experience of the Christian life, we can be filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. And these are important concepts to understand. And it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is related in this passage to the concept of temple, to the concept of temple. And temple at its core meaning is a has to do with the dwelling of God among his people. And so last time we began a study of this because as I have gone through this, I've realized there's a lot more to simply the doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit than what appears on the surface. And, and it's interesting, I'm, I'm currently writing a uh, paper. I've been asked to write on the fact that Christians cannot be demon-possessed. And, of course, a classic argument that has been used for years on against uh, demon possession of the Christian is that Christians are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and if a believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, then a demon or Satan could not indwell the same space or location. Therefore, uh, it's impossible for a believer to be demon-possessed. And that's true as far as it goes, but it's a shallow argument. 
and it's being assaulted from numerous quarters because it it leaves a lot out. And what it leaves out, I'm discovering, is this entire concept of what a temple is and how a temple functions. Because um, the classic argument that's being presented against it is that, well, Satan obviously goes into the presence of God in heaven. Uh, you had the presence of... Uh, of uh, sinful priests in the temple in the Old Testament. So obviously sin can be in the same presence as the holy God. And um, that works only because there's a failure to understand that the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit isn't simply indwelling. It is related to this entire concept of temple. And that concept in the Old Testament is was crucial to the uh, national sanctification of the nation Israel, and they were set apart to the service of God as a priest nation in the Old Testament. And this is signified by the presence of God in the, called the glory of God in the, what was later called by the rabbis the Shekinah glory, indicating the dwelling of God amongst his people in the temple. So in order to even begin to grasp the significance of what Paul is saying when he describes the individual believer as a temple of God, we must locate this within the overall framework of divine revelation. You can't come to a passage like this and have any comprehension of what Paul is saying if you don't have a complete understanding of what happens in the Old Testament in relationship to the concept of temple, beginning with uh, with God's presence even in the Garden of Eden. So last time we went back, just quickly by way of review, we looked at the fact that God clearly speaks, I mean the Scriptures clearly speak of God as dwelling with man, and this dwelling of God with man begins in the Garden of Eden, and it continues in each age in each period of time. There was the time prior to the fall when God's presence was at Eden, and daily he walked with Adam and Eshah in the Garden of Eden. After the fall, he continued his presence on the earth, and we saw that last time by looking at the the verse in Genesis 6-3 where God said, My spirit will not... Uh, and in the King James Version, some of the other modern translations still follow the King James, where it says, My spirit will not strive with man, and that's a bad translation. The Hebrew word there is a hapax legomena, which means it's only used one time in all of Hebrew literature. And by studying cognate languages, we know that that word means to abide or to dwell. And the indication there is that God's physical presence continued to dwell on the earth in Eden until the flood, and at which time God left the earth and at which time he delegated judicial responsibility to man. So we have a pre-Noahic presence of God on the earth, and God is not present again. He walks at times with uh, and appears in theophanies to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it is not until the Mosaic period that God returns to, the, to a permanent dwelling with his people on the earth in the tabernacle and in the temple. He returns at Mount Sinai. So we went through that and surveyed that, and then we looked at the doctrine of the Shekinah dwelling of God. I want to review that quickly. There were six points on the Shekinah dwelling of God. I'm not going to cover those six points in detail again. You can go back and listen to the uh, tape from last week if you missed it. But the main idea is to understand the terminology. And the key word here is Shekinah. 
And Shekinah is not a biblical word. It is a post-biblical word developed by the rabbis. It um, looks like this in the Hebrew. Shekinah. And it is from the Hebrew word shakan, which means to dwell. And it was used by the rabbis to relate to the dwelling of God. But the word that is used in the Old Testament to refer to the dwelling and the presence of God in the, in the tabernacle and the temple is the glory of God. And this is from the Hebrew word kavod, K-A-B-O-D-H. It's almost like it's an extremely soft T-H sound, kavod. And it is, this is the term that you find over and over again. But by the time of the rabbis, they used the term shakan or shekinah to refer to Yahweh's presence or dwelling on the earth. Another key phrase that is used in the Old Testament is the phrase house of God, referring to the tabernacle as the house of God that God localized himself in his theophonic presence on the earth. Such passages that we looked at last time are Exodus 16.10, Leviticus 9.23, and Numbers 14.10. We saw that during the time of the Exodus, God's glory was associated with a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night and that that was manifested first on Mount Sinai, and it was that pillar of cloud in the day and pillar of fire at night that guided the Jews in the wilderness and also was a visible sign of the covenant of God with Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, that brings us up to the next stage in our development, and that is understanding the Shekinah presence in the tabernacle and later the temple. So we're going to cover about, let me see, I have 15 points. I think we'll make it through that this morning. 15 points on the, uh, I see some pessimists in the crowd this morning. 15 points on the Shekinah in the tabernacle and temple. This is crucial to understand how all of these things fit together. You know, this just gets really exciting when you're a pastor and you're studying things like this and you begin to take things to sort of a new level and see how certain things begin to fit together between the Old Testament and the New Testament and how God develops these things during the progress of revelation and from dispensation to dispensation. And all of this, I think, is crucial for us to be able to fully grasp this fantastic privilege that we have as believer priests, that we are not only indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, but we are a temple for the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ. Point number one, the presence of the Shekinah sanctified the temple and made it holy. The presence of the Shekinah sanctified the temple, making it holy. Now, remember the word holy means to be set apart. It doesn't have a primary meaning of being pure or being moral or being good. That's an idea that comes later. It is subsequently packed in. The primary meaning of the Hebrew term kadash, which means to make holy or to consecrate, to sanctify, means to set apart to the service of God. 
And this is seen, I think, in the most extreme form because the feminine participle was a term that referred to the temple prostitutes who served in the fertility cults. And, of course, the temple prostitutes would not be morally pure, but they were, their bodies were set apart to the service of their God. And that's the, uh, illustrates for us the core meaning of the word to sanctify or to make holy. And when the presence of the Shekinah came into the Holy of Holies and the cloud uh, revealing the glory of God settled on the Ark of the Covenant that sanctified the tabernacle. Now, we're going to go through this. Oh, there we go. We're going to work off of a diagram here, and we're going to go back to a principle we developed in our study of Judges. I think what you're going to find as we go through this study on the Shekinah glory in the temple is that a number of things that we've studied in the last three or four years are going to sort of be pulled together to help us understand this concept. What we saw in our Judges study Was that there is an analogy that is drawn in the scriptures between corporate Israel, in other words, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is roughly analogous or equivalent to the life of the individual believer in the church age. That there is a correlation or analogy used. It's, it's the older, or in theology, this is often called t- typology. Uh, from the Greek word uh, tupas, meaning example, typology. And this is the, they're drawing an analogy between something in the Old Testament that prefigured or foreshadowed something in the New Testament. And what we have here is as God deals with Israel in certain ways in the Old Testament, as Israel demonstrates carnality and judgment and, and uh, when they're obedient, blessing, all of these different themes are analogous to what happens in the life of the believer individually. So what we see in the Old Testament is a an, uh, we'll just stick with the formal structure around Mount Sinai where you have the 12 tribes who are given a precise uh, location. We'll pull in a better slide of this next time. But they, they're in formation, and each tribe had a specific place to, to, to go in formation as they moved through through the wilderness. And in the center of their formation, you have, when they would encamp at night, you have the tabernacle. The tabernacle, at, the, at its very core, you have the wall, which shows that there is a separation, a distinction. This, this, the outer curtain uh, separated the inner sanctuary of the, of the holy place, which included the holy of holies and the, and the presence of God from the holy place. But it is this inner tent is separated and protected by this outer wall, this outer wall of curtain. And, and of course, there's only one entryway, which indicates there's only one presence to God. But that's not the point we're illustrating this morning. In the same way, you have the believer. Think about all the tribes of Israel out here as the physical body of the individual believer. And inside that physical body is a temple for the presence of God. 
Now keep that in mind as we go through this. I'm going to develop some implications from that as we go. But keep this in mind as a physical picture, just as in the, in the, uh, remember in the, we know that man has three parts. He has a physical body. Inside that physical body, he has a soul. And that soul at regeneration is joined with a human spirit. And inside this body, this is immaterial, inside the immaterial body, not in the soul or in the spirit, but inside the immaterial body, we have the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. This is, as you can see from this diagram, I'm drawing an analogy between, uh, and this creates a temple here, so this is analogous to the kind of structure we have in the Old Testament with the with the um, nation of Israel surrounding the the uh, inner sanctuary of the tabernacle and later the temple. Now, the presence of the Shekinah sanctified the temple and made it holy. Now, let's look at a couple of verses. For example, Exodus um, 25, 21 says, And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give to you, and there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of the ark. So God's presence is above the mercy seat, above the ark of the covenant, in the innermost sanctuary of the holy place, which we call the holy of holies. This is further illustrated in, in Exodus 33, verses 9 and 10, where we're told that it came about whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. And then in Exodus 40, verses 34 and following, we read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out, but if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. In other words, this is how God would guide and direct them. When the cloud settled over the tent of meeting, as long as it stayed there, they stayed in place. But when it was time to move, the cloud would lift from the tent of meeting and move forward, and then they would follow it through the wilderness. Okay, I was off on my slides. I want to catch up to where I'm supposed to be. Second point. This presence of God, the Shekinah glory, demonstrated that God was in the midst of his people and his presence was visible and verifiable. In the Old Testament, God is, is giving clear, physical, visible, verifiable signs of his presence. So the presence of the Shekinah was something that the people could gain comfort from. They could come out of their tent and they could look over there at the tent of meeting at the tabernacle and they could see the glory cloud over the tabernacle and know that God was with them. This would give them great uh, great comfort. Notice their faith is not purely by, by uh, uh 
based on the testimony of God, it is a faith that is confirmed by sight. We see this in passages like Exodus 16.10. It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. And then this cloud in that context is going to come and settle over the tabernacle. And again, in Numbers 14.10, the congregation said to stone them with stones, and then the glory of Yahweh appeared in the tent of meeting. So we see his presence is visible and verifiable. The third point is that the presence became the basis for fellowship for the people. This presence of God is the basis for their fellowship with God. It is analogous to, to our position in Christ. We are positionally in Christ at the moment of salvation, but fellowship has to do with our day-to-day experience. So the fact that the presence was there did not mean that they were, they were enjoying fellowship with God, but it is the basis for their fellowship with God. And so the analogy for the believer is that the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, becomes the basis for our fellowship with God although we have to have the filling of the Holy Spirit is what is equated to the uh, fellowship for the believer. Uh, Old Testament passages are Leviticus 9.23 and again Numbers chapter 14.10. Point number four, this glory cloud that occurred at the tabernacle in Exodus and Leviticus is the same glory cloud that came into the temple that Solomon constructed. This is the same glory cloud that comes into the temple that Solomon constructed. This is seen in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, and 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. 1 Kings 8.10 states, It came about when the priest came from the holy place that the cloud filled the house of Yahweh. So this is at the dedication of the temple, the glory cloud filled the house of Yahweh so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And I want you to notice the terminology used in the Old Testament again. It refers to the glory of Yahweh. These are crucial terms. You're going to see as we get to the end how these things connect. Because if you and I are supposed to glorify God to the maximum in our spiritual life, it starts by understanding the fact that we have this glory of God as part of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's our potential. And what we're looking for is the activation of that potential as a result of our spiritual life. So we have these key terms, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, the house of the Lord is the temple. The only house of the Lord today is your physical body. This church building is not the house of God. That's a term that was inappropriately borrowed from the Old Testament at one time. People would refer to the church as the house of God. God does not inhabit the church. He indwells each individual believer. Second Chronicles 5.13 refers also to this uh, same presence of God. Look toward at the end. We read, He indeed, the Lord was saying, or the, they praised the Lord saying, He indeed is good for His loving kindness is everlasting than the house. The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. And then verse 14, So the ministers could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of God. So the same glory cloud that we have at the tabernacle inhabits the temple. 
when Solomon constructs it and dedicates it, 1 Kings 8, 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Fifth point, the Shekinah glory then provided security and guidance for the nation Israel. It was the presence of God that provided security and guidance for the nation Israel. We see this in Exodus chapter 14, verse 19, and also in chapter 40, verses 36 to 38. In Exodus 14:19, we read, And the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel, notice it identifies the presence as the angel of God. The cloud itself is not God, it, but is used to manifest the presence of God. And so the term here, angel of God, describes God. It's not an angel, but it is God himself. And is probably a reference to, although the term is not the angel of Yahweh, which is the normal term for the angel of the Lord, and there are a few passages such as this one where the term angel of God refers to the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Now we're going to connect that in eventually this morning. The angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of the cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. That was to provide protection. As they were at this stage, the Amalekites were about to attack, and so the angel of God moves his location and is providing security and protection for the nation. Or, excuse me, Exodus 14 is when the uh, Egyptians are approaching as they're approaching the Red Sea. Uh, Exodus chapter 40, verses 36 to 38, we're told that throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. So God's presence provides security and provides uh, guidance. In the same way, we have the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, that provides security. The indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, thus is connected to the sealing of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of eternal security. In Israel, in the Old Testament, the Shekinah presence was lost, but the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, for the believer today is not lost. The Shekinah left Israel on two occasions, once when the ark was captured by the Philistines in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 5, and again in Ezekiel when the nation has disobeyed God and they are uh, going to be disciplined through the fifth cycle of discipline and the uh, temple is going to be destroyed, the Shekinah glory of God departed. So what we see in all of this is that the is point number six. The Shekinah glory is is localized over the Ark of the Covenant. Now here is a schematic of actually the temple, but the uh, temporary tabernacle was very similar. This is the inner sanctuary inside the temple, not the outer courtyard surrounded by the outer curtain, but the inner sanctuary. It is composed of two sections. The outer section is called the holy place, and the inner section is called the holy of holies. Now, the outer section, the holy place, has three um, elements. They have the golden candlestick, which is a uh, foreshadowing or type of Jesus Christ as the light of the world. On the opposite wall was the table of showbread, which was a picture, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ as the bread of life. And then 
before entering into the actual inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, you had the altar of incense, which is a picture of intercession. As the, as the incense burned and the smoke ascended, that is a picture of the prayers of intercession for uh, God's people. And then you had a curtain, a veil, that was constructed to separate the outer holy place from the inner holy of holies. And the high priest could only enter into the holy of holies one time a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, he would come and place blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And here you have the location of the Ark of the Covenant inside the holy of holies. Now, in the in the um, tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant was centered in the Holy of Holies. In the uh, temple that Solomon constructed, and we'll see this in a few minutes, it is placed towards the back, and there is a second set of cherubim, not simply the cherubim that are on the Ark of the Covenant. Let's look at a picture. Here's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant where you have two cherubs placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant actually has uh, two areas. But for right now, we'll just focus on the fact that the top area is the mercy seat, and this is where the high priest would place the blood of the sacrifice, and the two angels represent the righteousness and justice of God uh, satisfied by the, by the sacrifice. So it is at, over the Ark of the Covenant that God's presence was localized. Now, this is going to be crucial for understanding the significance of all of this. Let's go to um, point number seven then. Though there was a visible presence of God, and though the Jews could come out every day in the morning and they could take a look and they could see the cloud and at night they could see the fire, they knew God was present there. That isn't how they learned about God. This is important. We never learn at no point in any dispensation except for the the, uh, period before the fall is God learned about through direct observation. Empiricism is never the basis for learning about God. It is always divine revelation. The Jews knew God was present, and that confirmed their covenant relationship and confirmed the security and guidance of God, but they did not learn about God. They did not learn about His nature, His essence, or His will from directly seeing Him. They learned about God indirectly through the revelation of doctrine given through the prophets. That's so important to understand. Sometimes people get the idea that in the Old Testament people had sort of a direct knowledge of God. But that's not true. That's why God gave the revelation through the prophets, and there was continuous and de- revelation and a development in their understanding of God as that revelation continued. Jews were in the Old Testament to meditate on his presence, and they were to focus on the fact that God's presence was in the temple and to meditate on it. And an example of this is found in the 99th Psalm. And I don't want to take the time to exegete through the psalm, but I want to read through it because it shows us how a mature believer thinks about doctrine and reflects upon the doctrine in his soul. Psalm 99.1. Think of this, the Jew looking at the tabernacle and going home and thinking about what that means for him and what that means for the nation Israel. 
This is what meditation means. Meditation is not the concept that you get from Eastern religions of just sort of emptying the mind and focusing on nothing or picking an empty sound or or picking some sort of uh, individual uh, mental image and then just focusing on that. Meditating on Scripture has the idea of thinking profoundly about God's Word. Uh, taking it apart, that involves memorization of Scripture. If you don't memorize Scripture, it's very difficult to meditate on God's Word. It has to do with concentration, and it has to do with study, and it is for every believer. So the writer of the 99th Psalm has been reflecting upon the significance of the Shekinah presence in the, te- in the uh, temple. And he begins by saying, Yahweh reigns, let the peoples tremble. He thinks about the fact that since God is the king, the theocratic king of Israel, the people should tremble. This should bring awe into their souls that the eternal creator God of the universe is is specifically ruling and reigning over the nation Israel. He said, Yahweh reigns, let the people tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. He is enthroned above the cherubim is a direct reference back to the Ark of the Covenant. That the it pictures the the imagery here of the two cherubs and they that they are supporting an invisible throne of God from which he is going to rule and reign over the nation Israel. He is enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. Notice how he moves from a principle to an application. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. There should be a consequent, a consequence to our realization of the sovereignty of God. Verse 2, the Lord is great in Zion, and he is exalted above all the people. So here we have a developmental or emblematic parallelism where you have a principle in the first line, the Lord is great in Zion, and then that is expanded in the second clause. He's exalted above all the peoples, literally all the nations. So he's not just the God of Israel, but he is the ruler over all nations, all Gentiles, the Goyim. Psalm 99.3, Let them praise thy great and awesome name, Holy is he. And again, we have an indication of name not simply being, being a, being nomenclature or being a title, but having to do with character. Notice he says, let them praise thy great and awesome name, and then he explains what that is. Holy is he. It's an emphasis on his character, on his integrity, because God is holy. And the idea of holy, uh, when it's applied to God, has to do with his uniqueness as well. That he is uniquely, he has a unique integrity. And because of his unique righteousness and justice, he is worthy of praise. And then he goes on in verse 4 to develop that. He says, And the strength of the king loves justice. Notice how, as he brings in the idea of holiness, this reminds him of the two attributes of holiness, which are righteousness and justice. And he says, The strength of the king loves justice. Thou hast established equity. Thou hast executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Jacob being a term or a designation for the nation Israel. 
So it is talking about the fact that this, that this king, Yahweh, is a God who is holy, and that holiness is demonstrated in his integrity, and that integrity characterizes his relationship with Jacob. Now, it's, I think it's instructive to notice that he uses the term Jacob and not Israel. Israel was the name God gave to Jacob. But whenever Israel is referred to as Jacob, there is an emphasis on his humanity and thus his fallen and usually carnal condition. For example, in the tribulation, it is not called the time of Israel's wrath, but the time of Jacob's wrath. Jacob, when Jacob is used of the nation Israel, what is being emphasized is their sinfulness and their carnality. And so we have here an emphasis that God is executing justice and righteousness in Jacob. He deals fairly on the basis of integrity with the nation, with the fallen nation, even in their uh, rebellion. As a result of this, there is a command. Because we understand who and what God is, there is a command to exalt him, to honor him, to salute him, to praise him, exalt Yahweh our God, and worship at his footstool. Notice that there is a, there's been an allusion here to two elements, the throne of God and the footstool of God. Now, where was the throne located? The throne is located invisibly above the cherubs, but it is the ark that is pictured here as his footstool. So these are the two elements, the, the throne and the footstool of God. And again, he repeats the statement, holy is he. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon Yahweh, and he answered them. He spoke to them how? In the pillar of cloud. So we're back to the Shekinah presence, the dwelling of God among his people. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Yahweh our God, thou didst answer them. Thou wast a forgiving God to them. It ties that back to integrity. We talked about his holiness, yet he is still a God who forgives. And yet an avenger of their evil deeds. And the focus there is he still disciplined them. Even though there is forgiveness, there is still divine discipline and consequences for sin. Conclusion, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. That's the mountain of God, Mount Zion, the place of the, te- of the uh, location of the, of the temple. Why? Because holy, holy or set apart or unique is Yahweh our God. So the visible presence of God was not the basis for learning about God, but his revelation. And as we see in this example from Psalm 99, the Jews were to meditate on his presence and on his revelation. You see the allusions and the, and the references to Moses. And to, and to Samuel, which how would the writer know about them other than that he has studied the, the scriptures, the scrolls, and the, the Torah uh, written by Moses, and also the scrolls written by Samuel, what we would call First and Second Samuel. And because he has taken the time to think about doctrine, he's reflected upon what happened in the wilderness, he's reflected upon what happened with Samuel in the early part of First Samuel, and because he's thinking about this, he then moves beyond simple thought to a praise and recognition of who God is. That is the movement in meditation and in thinking about doctrine. Well, from this we see point number eight, that the ark was composed of two elements. The ark is composed of two elements. There is the lid above and the box below. It's the lid and the box. The box was a casket-shaped container 
Notice I use the word casket. It's not simply a box. It's a casket-shaped container because it contains three things, the law which was broken, the manna which was rejected, and Aaron's rod. The manna represented the rejection of God's provision of food and logistical grace, and Aaron's rod that budded, which was came out of an episode in the Old Testament when the people rebelled against Aaron's leadership. They wanted another priest, and so God demonstrated that that Aaron was the his chosen priest by causing his staff to sprout green leaves. Of course, the staff is taken from dead wood, and they took the staves, the rods of Aaron and the others who wanted to be priests in his place, put them inside the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, Overnight, and the next morning they got up, and there were green shoots that came out of Aaron's rod. And that indicated that, that God was the God who, who favored Aaron and who could bring life where there was death. And it indicated that Aaron was his chosen priest. But the reason they put that inside the ark was because it represented the Israelites' rebellion against God's uh, gracious provision of leadership. So the presence of the of the tables of the law, which were broken, signified their sin. Their manna, the, uh, a representation of God's logistical grace, which they rejected, and Aaron's rod representing the leadership they rejected, all are symbols of Israel's sinfulness. And the fact that it's a casket-shaped container is a reminder that the penalty for sin is death and separation from God. So there is the lower level, which is the box, and then there's the upper level, which is called the kephoret. And the kephoret, Hebrew term, looks like this. K-A-P-P-O-R-E-T, kephoret. Now this is from the Hebrew verb kafar. And this has traditionally been taken to mean to cover. That's how I learned it as a seminary student. That's what you have in, in many, uh, as a primary meaning in many, in many Hebrew lexicons, many older studies. However, there's been some fantastic research done in recent years in meaning of several words, especially as we've uncovered other uh, related or cognate languages to Hebrew. And we've discovered that, especially when you look at how it's translated in many places in the Septuagint, that the primary meaning of kafar, which is the word for atonement, doesn't mean to cover, it means to cleanse. And it is often often uh, translated in the uh, Septuagint by the key word uh, katharizo, which is the word for uh, in in Greek, the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation the Jews used of the Old Testament, which means to cleanse or to purify, and so the basic idea of atonement had to do with purification. And so what I'm the case I'm building here is the presence of God is enthroned above the kafor. This is the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the place where. Cleansing or purification took place, and that the presence of God cannot come to Israel until first and foremost there is a purification or cleansing that has transpired. God cannot indwell something that has not been first 
cleansed or purified. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we realize that this fits Paul's whole argument here in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. He started off by reminding them that they were sanctified. They were set apart unto God, even though they're carnal, disobedient, operating on pagan thought, operating on human viewpoint. They are positionally sanctified. God has to first positionally sanctify or cleanse us before he can indwell us. And so the Holy Spirit cleanses us, sanctifies us, purifies us positionally at the instant of salvation in order to make a home for the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ. This is the same thing that took place in the Old Testament, a positional cleansing of Israel, which took place at Mount Sinai. And because of that, the presence of God now can indwell the temple. What we're going to see with that, especially if we apply it to the issue of of, uh, demonic uh, or demon possession of the Christian, is that it's not simply a fact that the, that God the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, but for him to indwell the believer, he has had to positionally purify this inner area where, where God is going to, or where Jesus Christ is going to indwell as a temple. And where we will, we will see how God protected that inner area in the Old Testament, even though there might be sin in the camp, even though there might be sin among the Jews in the camp, there could be nothing impure enter into the inner area where God's presence or God's indwelling presence was located. So in the inner sanctuary, you have the ark that's composed of two elements, the caport, which is the the covering, the mercy seat, that is the place of cleansing or purification, indicating that positionally the nation has been cleansed and set apart unto God. This doesn't mean that the individuals are all saved. It means that God is setting apart the nation for his service. Remember, in Exodus chapter 4, God said that he was calling them to be a kingdom of priests for his special purposes. In Solomon's temple, the ark is set apart inside the intersection, uh, is distinct from the two cherubim. There were two enormous cherubs that were constructed, two gold cherubs that were several uh, cubits tall that were set in the center of, of, of the Holy of Holies, and it was underneath those supporting cherubs that the ark was situated. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 19. Then he, Solomon, prepared an inner sanctuary within the house in order to place there the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. And then in verse 23, it goes on to state, Also in the inner sanctuary he made two cherub, cherubim of, ol, of olive wood, each ten cubits high. And five cubits was the one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the other wing of the cherub. And the end of one wing to the end of the other wing were ten cubits. The other cherub was ten cubits. Both the cherubim were of the same measure and the same form. The height of one cherub was ten, and so was the other. Ten cubits is about 18 feet. So these are are enormous. And then we go down to verse, um, uh, let me see, skip down to First Kings 8, 6. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubs. So it is placed under their wings, and remember it is on the wings of the cherub. In Psalm 99, the first verse, it is on the wings of the cherub that you have the throne of God. So in the tabernacle, the throne of God was pictured over the wings of the cherub on the, on the lid of the ark. 
but in the temple, the throne of God is on these two enormous 18 foot tall, 18 feet tall cherubim that are in the center of the holy, uh, holy of holies. Point number 10. See, we're getting close. We just might make it. The ark served as an ongoing reminder of God's covenant with Israel. The ark served as an ongoing reminder of God's covenant with Israel. So as long as there was the presence of God over the ark, it serves as a reminder that God has entered into a unique and special relationship with the nation Israel, that no matter what happens, no matter how disobedient they are, they are reminded that they are still in a covenant relationship with God. In the same way, the church-age believer, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, is an, has the Holy Spirit as an ongoing reminder of his eternal security and is thus related to the doctrine of the sealing of the Spirit, that every believer is sealed by God and cannot lose salvation. Point number 11. This is the presence of God is positional, but it did not guarantee experiential blessing for Israel. See, it is the basis for blessing, but it didn't guarantee it. Blessing for Israel is dependent upon their obedience. They have to be obedient. In the same way, though we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit and in the family of God, there is not blessing for the believer unless we are walking by God the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ. Uh, Exodus 25:22 states, and God says, And there, that is, he's talking to Moses, there above the cherubim I will meet you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. And then we don't have time to look at it, but you can look at Jeremiah 7, verses 3 through 15. And in that passage, Israel is warned much later in their history about their disobedience. And in verse 3 of Jeremiah 7, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. That is, I will let you continue to dwell in the land of Israel. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. See, the deceptive words were, This is the temple, so God's not going to actually fulfill those uh, warnings back in Leviticus of taking us out of the land. And this is a warning in Jeremiah chapter 7 that if they would not that if the Jews would not return to obedience to him, then he would remove his presence. Once he removed his presence, the temple was no longer sanctified, and it could then be destroyed. That takes us to more of an operational aspect, uh, our experiential aspect of the, of the uh, in Shekinah indwelling, and that's point number 12, that the priesthood, both the function of the individual priests and the ritual they followed were to be according to a precisely correct procedure. The priesthood and the ritual had to follow a precisely correct procedure. They could not deviate from that procedure. God specifically spelled out how the the temple was to be constructed, how the high priest was to be dressed, what they were supposed to do in each and every instance. If they violated that, then there would be horrendous consequences. So they had to follow a precisely correct procedure because that guaranteed that the that the sanctified presence of the Shekinah would not be defiled. 
Point 13. If the inner sanctuary were violated, the result was immediate cleansing through death. See, you have three examples of this in the Old Testament. Let's just look at one, and I'll refer you to the others. Turn to Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. This introduces the rebellion of Nadab and Abihu. They are sons of Aaron, yet they were in rebellion against Aaron's leadership. And they wanted the priestly line to go through them rather than their brother Eleazar. Then, then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer. A censer was a bowl in which incense was placed a metal uh, receptacle so they would not get burned. Each took his censer and put fire in it. Now, this is unauthorized fire, unauthorized incense. This has not been sanctified. Now, the incense and the fire is also provided a source of light inside the tent. Each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire. Now, I'm reading from the King James, and the word profane is, is literally is the word common. This means it has not been sanctif- properly sanctified and authorized to, be, to come into the presence of God. So they go into the Holy of Holies to offer this uh, unauthorized fire before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them, so they're not doing it as a result of command. They're just doing it on their own. And we're told the consequences in verse 2. So fire went out from Yahweh and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. See, there are serious consequences to violating that inner sanctuary. There could be sin and rebellion outside in the camp in Israel, but if you came into the that temple of God in the, in the Holy of Holies and Holy Place with, with something that violated the holiness of God, the consequence was death. This is why, you, going back to the to the opening I- issue on demon possession in a Christian, is that it's not simply a matter of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit has sanctified the inner area of, of the believer so that in our innermost area there is a a temple, and that temple is for the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ, and that cannot be violated. And if it, if it is, there can be sin in our life, Paul uses the term sin in our members, in this body of sin, the flesh, but in terms of that inner area that is the temple uh, set aside for the indwelling of Jesus Christ, it can't be violated. Therefore, a demon could certainly not enter in. Or Satan could not enter in. So believers cannot be possessed or indwelt by, by, uh, by demons. The issue with Nadab and Abihu is that they were, number one, in rebellion against God. Secondly, they were bringing unauthorized light into the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah, where the glory, the light of God dwelt. So they are going to bring a false glory, a pseudo glory into the 
presence of the glory that is Yahweh's. Now, you have two other examples of the violation of God's presence in the Old Testament. In uh, 1 Samuel 5, you have the episode where the ark is captured by the Philistines, and they set it before Dagon, and each morning the Philistines would come into the temple, and this big statue of Dagon would be down on his face, uh, bowing down to the ark of the covenant. And then in Second uh, Samuel chapter 6, verses 2 through 10, as they are moving the ark into Jerusalem, the donkey on which it is being carried stumbles, and Uzzah, one of the uh, assistants, reaches out to stabilize the ark. See, what he's doing is he's trying to stabilize God. God doesn't need any help to be stable. And so as he touches the ark, he instantly dies. So this is just to illustrate the fact that the inner sanctuary, the temple, uh, sanctified presence of God cannot be violated by anything uh, less holy than he. Point number 14. When Israel disobeyed God, they lost blessing, and the eventual punishment was the loss of the Shekinah. And the purpose for that was not that they lost their covenant status, they still had it. But God had to leave the temple before the temple could be destroyed. If his presence were still there, then he could, it could not be, his presence could not be violated or defiled by the Gentiles who were going to destroy Israel and discipline Israel by the Assyrians and later the, uh, the Babylonians. Uh, the Babylonians were the ones that actually destroyed the temple in 586 BC and then the Romans again in 70. Point number 15. We come back to the analogy we began with and that is that just as God was in the midst, in the middle of Israel, corporate Israel, and the Hebrew word there is betok, which means in their midst. The, the New Testament picks up that analogy to show that God the Holy Spirit is in us, and it uses a different word. It's not just in our midst, but it is the preposition in plus the dative, the locative dative indicating that he is inside each and every believer. So with that, we complete our study of understanding the Shekinah glory and its presence in the Old Testament and the function, its function in the tabernacle and the temple. Next time, we're going to build on that and look at the doctrine that Jesus Christ is that Old Testament Shekinah. And from that, we will then develop the, an understanding of what the Shekinah presence means or what the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, and the temple presence means for the believer in this church age. That's going to take us two or three weeks. Isn't this fun, learning these great things? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and realize the fantastic privileges and blessing that you have given us to, to, to actually be the, the, the house, a temple for the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you said is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We're to believe that Jesus Christ died as a substitute for our sins, according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. This is the essence of of the gospel. It's not dependent on you. It's not dependent on moral reformation, church involvement, church attendance. It's not based on any human factor, but on the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to study your word and to understand more fully all that you have provided for us in this church age. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.